Good morning, church. Como esta? Muy bien. Yeah. My Spanish is bad, so I will, we will refrain from any more of that. But uh, what little bit I have picked up here and there on mission trips has been just enough to make it through the marketplace without hopefully not being taken advantage of too much as the yank in a, in a Latin American country. Hey, we're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, the very last verse of chapter 2, and then jump into chapter 3, go through verse 5. I think Chris mentioned last week that sometimes chapter breaks in Scripture don't match up with where you think they should, and and this is kind of one of those, there's a paragraph that kind of starts us off in a new thought process here in Malachi chapter 2 at the end of uh, verse 17 there. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Malachi chapter 2 verse 17. If not, that's okay. We've got it up on the screen, and you can follow along there. We're reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible today, and um, as we do about every Sunday. Let's go ahead and hear the word of the Lord. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and he will bring offerings in the righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much um, for the day you've given to us. We thank you for this time we have to be in your word and this time we have to to hear your word. Father, I pray that as we we go into this time of of worship through the hearing and and then response to your word, that you would just continue to speak to our hearts, that you would would have us see that that you desire to purify your people. Those who who call upon your name, whom you have adopted as children, you want to make us pure. You want to make us holy as you are holy. Father, let us not fight against that. Let us seek and desire that purification. It is is better for us to be purified than it is to see your judgment. And we ask, Lord, that as we we are in this time where we're in the Word, that you would just, again, speak to our hearts through your Word. Convict us, challenge us, draw us closer to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When we introduced the book of Malachi, as Chris and I have been preaching through these, these minor prophets, as, as we introduced we talked about that, that there's a lot of disputes, that Malachi is written as kind of this, here's an argument that people have against God, and here's God disputing their argument back. Like, there's this kind of give and take with that. 
this is the beginning of the, what we would think of as the fourth dispute that God now has against the people of Israel. He's, he's accusing the people of Israel of wearying him, right? And he's wearying them by their cynicism and their, and their complaints just over and over again. They're, they're issuing kind of the same complaint in a new way all the time. They're still accusing God of giving the enemies of Israel and those who do evil preferential treatment over the people of Israel. We know that the people have been in exile for 70 years. They've come back, they've rebuilt the temple, and they're expecting some great things to happen now that the temple's been rebuilt, right? The, the people have heard the words of the prophet Haggai, and they've heard the words of the prophet Zechariah, and these, these prophets who, who talked about the new temple and, and how the new temple would bring about a new prosperity for them. And they're expecting this international prominence, and they're expecting great wealth amongst Israel now that the temple's rebuilt. But but it's not come yet. It's just not there. See, they're still kind of existing in a social and political oppression, and they're still seeing some economic struggle. And, and remember that, that these are still a, a captured people in some way. Yes, they've been returned from Babylon, but they still have the authority of Babylon's government over them. They're not completely free in God yet. And the people also remember that the tabernacle of Moses and the original temple that Solomon built were filled with the presence and glory of the Lord as, as soon as they were completed. Right? There's the stories in, in Exodus as the tabernacle that, that fire came down and, and smoke and the clouds and all these things. And, and this very similar happening happened when Solomon finished and dedicated his temple. And the people were hoping for God to do just that. They want to see God return to Jerusalem. They want to see him inhabit the temple. They knew the promise of God through Haggai that his temple would even be more glorified and have even more glory than Solomon's temple. What they missed was that Haggai was talking about Christ being in that new temple. And it says that God has become wearied by the people's constant complaining. I, this word wearied in Hebrew is great. It's really translated as annoyed. God is, is, is sick and tired of all of this. He's fed up. He's aggravated. Now, think about that. The people of Israel have aggravated the Lord. We know what it's like to be aggravated by something. We know what it's like. We've, we're guilty of this, right? We've all ridden in the back seat on a road trip with a parent, and we've aggravated a sibling, right? We know what it's like to aggravate someone. The one individual that I would not want to have aggravated at me is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God of all creation. And yet the people of Israel have aggravated the Lord. And what we've read throughout all of Malachi is that the people have been accusing God of favoring the evil and the unjust over his own people. And God has shown them that he is always just. And there are examples throughout Scripture, and God has even taken them and pointed them to that Scripture and to those historical evidences where I have been just for your sake and for my glory. And he's showing them that, too, sometimes the wicked get blessings just through my common grace. It is grace that any of us 
saved, unsaved, God's children, not God's children, are here. That's common grace. And he's reminding them that sometimes that happens. But earlier in Malachi, what God also did is he would provide an explanation for why it seemed that the the wicked were blessed and the Israelites were not. Here, God is aggravated. He's fed up. You know what you've done. He gives no explanation. Now, he does pinpoint out their hypocrisy. As the people of Israel point a finger at God, they need to be aware of the fact that there are three fingers pointing back at them in guilt as well. Right? Remember that as a kid, we used to say that, you know, you point a finger at me, you got three pointing back at you. Well, that's really kind of what's happening here. They're much more guilty than God. And the temple here in Malachi's time is completely devoid, lacking any visible or any physical manifestation of Yahweh God. He's just not there. And the people are under some delusion here that the appearance of God is going to bring about nothing for them but good news and good things. But in Malachi 3, we see that he's starting to talk to them about when he comes, it's not just going to be for blessing. The people want that. The people want God's presence, and they want God's blessing. But when God comes, it's not just about a blessing, which is what they're assuming. That God's return will bring about purification, and God's return will bring about judgment. And he will come as a witness against all evildoers. I like that. This is the same word witness that we see in in 2.14. But you say, why does he not in 2.14? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It's that same witness there, right? That means that God knows what's happening. He's, He's partaking. He's part of all of this. The evildoers that God will judge here, they're the same folks in 2.14 that, that have been faithless to their wives, which in turn made them be faithless unto God. And now they're faithless again because they're complaining and they're cynical and they're arrogant. The evildoers that God will judge include the cynical blasphemers that Malachi is addressing right now in chapter 3. Now I want us to take a closer look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. See, there's something we need need to pay attention to in this verse. The Lord of hosts is speaking. God the Father is doing the speaking here through Malachi. But it's also the Lord of hosts who is sending the messenger. So the messenger here is someone different than the Lord of hosts, or someone different than God the Father. And we also know that from back at the very beginning, we talked about Malachi, that Malachi literally translated out of the Hebrew means my messenger or messenger of God, right? That's what Malachi's name means. But, but the Lord of hosts says, he will prepare a way for me, will prepare is future tense. Malachi is, as he's here, living in the, what would be his present tense. So this indicates that the messenger is not Malachi. 
but yet someone still to come. See, Malachi is preparing the people for another messenger who is to come. And, and I don't want us to miss these messianic connections here. Right? Malachi is pointing ahead. We know that all of Scripture points us to Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, so all points us toward Jesus. But here Malachi is very specifically pointing us towards Jesus. The people seek the Lord, and he's planning on sending them a messenger of the covenant in which they delight. Right? This, is, this is a reference here to John the Baptist ushering in the ministry of Jesus. John is the messenger who prepares the way, and Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, and, and Leah read this earlier, he quotes from this passage of Malachi when he's speaking about John the Baptist. Verses 2 through 4 then describe to us what Jesus does as a purifying Savior. And as we look at this, it's really interesting to me that as we read this passage, it appears that Malachi is giving a prophecy of Jesus' second coming, his return, not Jesus' initial incarnation. See, in Jesus' initial incarnation, in Jesus' first coming, he came preaching about repentance and redemption. In his second coming, that's about judgment and purification. And that's what Malachi is talking about here, judgment and purification. Verses 2 through 4, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as, and as in former years. He's going to do two things when he comes. He's going to purify and he's going to judge. Now, these two things seem almost incongruent with one another. They seem like they don't match up. How do you purify and how do you judge at the same time? But they really do work hand in hand. Jesus is going to purify those sinners who have been redeemed and are called by his name. Those of us who have said, Jesus, I need you. I have failed to live up to your standard, and you have, have graciously convicted me of that. And I want to be a servant of yours. And he's also going to judge those sinners who have never had that repentance moment, who've never said, I need you, Jesus. And these images that Malachi uses to describe the purification process show the severity as well as the thoroughness of God's purification process. He first describes a refiner's fire, heating metal to its melting point. And not just heating it to its melting point, but then keeping it at its melting point. For a time in which all the junk, all the imperfections will rise up to the top and then are literally scraped off the top and thrown away. I did this one summer. It was the weirdest summer job I think I've ever taken as a student. Right? I, I worked at a, at a facility that I think is now closed. It was up on 21st Street that we, we, we literally took aluminum and melted aluminum and made 600-pound ingots of aluminum. Right? 
cans, carburetors, old trailers, anything that was aluminum. We took it in, we cut it up, and we melted it down. That fire was only around, I don't know, 1900 or 2000 degrees Fahrenheit. It was one of the cooler fires for melting metals. Lead being like really cool, about seven or 800 degrees. Steel, if we were doing steel, we'd have to be at 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit to melt down any steel when we were doing what little bit of steel we did. And I just remember standing in front of that, that hot molten aluminum and feeling that heat and thinking it took 45 minutes to an hour to even get the crucible warm enough to start pouring stuff in. Like how long it took to then, then wait and just let it sit and kind of bubble and boil and then scrape it off. And then let it sit and do that again and then scrape it off. The long, tedious process it took to get all that dross out of that aluminum. It was a lot. It's a long, tedious process. Our purification is going to be a long, tedious process. And then Malachi describes a fuller soap, right? Um, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. A fuller is, is, is an old word. We don't use it anymore, right? We've, we hear about the fuller brush man, right? The, the guy that back in the day, these come door to door and, and sell brushes. Or you see fuller brushes now and fuller brooms still in, in the stores. The idea is that this is somebody who is a contract cleaner for you. That's what a fuller was. And typically they were a contract laundry person. You'd send your laundry out to the fuller and the fuller would do your laundry, and when they would do the laundry, they used lye soap. Remember grandma's good old-fashioned lye soap? Take the hide right off of you. You'll scrub yourself down. It was worse than the green soap in the school clinics when we were kids in the 80s. Right? This was some rough stuff. But not only would the fuller wash with that caustic lye soap, before they would even start to wash the laundry, they would boil it all. Put the laundry in a pot cover the pot up, bring the pot to a full boil, then pull it out and then scrub as hard as they could that boiling laundry with this lye soap. Then, this is where it gets real fun, they lay it against rocks and beat it with sticks to try to get any stains or any other impurities out of your clothes, Right? I think the times that we were in Ecuador and the laundry stations and some of the villages in Ecuador we had where the, where the women would have these carved laundry basins that were of stone, of, of some of the volcanic stone in the area. And there was this, this sink and they literally would build a little fire under the sink to bring the water up to heat so they could wash. And then on the other side of it, there was a carved in the stone scrub board, just like the metal scrubbing boards, we, you know, grandma used to have. They had them there, and they would take the soap, literally a big bar of soap, and they would wash their clothes and then dip it back down into that hot water underneath this little stone laundry situation. And that's how they washed their clothes. This is what God is describing as he's describing our purification system. I'm going to dip you in some hot boiling water. I'm going to scrub you with hard brushes, bang you against some rocks. Then... When you're done with that, I'm going to put you into some fire, let you melt down a little bit, and then scrape the rest of the gunk out of you. Because I love you. And I want you pure. And I want you holy before I return. 
See, as, as difficult as, and harsh as this seems, going through the Lord's purification process should be much, much, much more preferred in our lives than going through His judgment. See, it's God's divine instrument for molding us into His image to taking us from, from being a rebel to a saint, from taking us from being a sinner into the likeness of Christ is, is through pain and suffering. And we should expect that because our Savior had pain and suffering in this world. God disciplines those He loves. Just like a parent disciplines their child. Sometimes discipline for a child can be easy. Stop it. Some kids respond to that. I was not necessarily one of those kids. Sometimes the discipline is, is tough. and It's got to be a little more intense. As we go through that discipline from a God who loves us because he's called us out, as we go through that, we are being purged of our impurities here on earth. We're being made more holy because He is holy. We're being made more like Him through that. And we will see this final purification when Christ returns and He's on His mercy seat. And, and then we are finally completely purified. And as followers of, of Christ, we're going to be tested by fire before our final glorification. And it's only those things that glorify God, only the things that we do that honor Him, that, that make His name known well, that... that, that Please Him. Those things that glorify God, only those things will stand the test of His refining fire. Nothing else we do will stand that test. So the defining fire destroys all our sin nature as we are conformed into the image of Christ. We've got to examine ourselves daily. And we've got to desire only that which glorifies God. An examination of, of your life, an examination of, of your works today is so much better than the loss of, of eternal blessing tomorrow. As tough as it, it may be to praise God through suffering, we still thank Him for discipling and disciplining those He loves. Be grateful that, that God is gracious enough to purify you, call you His children, and mold you and conform you into the image of Jesus. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 5, God has, has charged the people of Israel of doing some grievous prohibitions that he has given to them previously in the Old Testament. They've committed acts of sorcery, acts of adultery, acts of lying, they're oppressing the most vulnerable within their community. And all of these are, are breaches in the covenant that show the people's desire for something 
or someone other than God. All of these show that they have chosen to love something other than God more. See, covenant people that God is, in, God is a part of, God, covenant people are marked by a fear of the Lord, a reverential fear, knowing who He is, knowing His power, knowing His might, and understanding how powerful that is. See, these sins show that they have no true fear. They have no true reverence for the Lord. The people's hearts have been revealed. See, our fear of the Lord preserves us for the day of judgment. And it's coming. We, we tend to act like, like there's no judgment coming to us. You know, or or we, we get brazen enough to say, only God can judge me. Yeah. That's exactly what the Word says, that God will judge you, and it's not going to go well. Especially if we're like the people of Israel are here and we're flippant toward our God. We're showing no reverence toward our God. We're showing no fear toward our God. Our fear of the Lord preserves us for that day. And our fear of the Lord should teach us that we need to live in a manner that glorifies Him in all that we do. That we, we are to appreciate God's grace and we are to appreciate God's mercy. And without the fearful reverence of the Lord, we can easily forget the radical nature of our salvation through the gospel message. That we were rebels who became saints. See, that, that forgetfulness can, can lead us to wander from our God. And if we lack the proper fear of God, it may show that, that we have never truly surrendered our hearts to God in the first place. We've never surrendered our lives to Him. God has a complaint here against Israel in Malachi, chapter 2, 5 through, or three, chapter 2, 17 through 3, 5, right? And his complaint is, is this, that they accuse God of divine injustice, and they've been accusing God of divine injustice over and over again. God defends his justice. He has shown them how he is just, how he has chosen them to be his children. He defends his justice. He defends his promises. And he talks about a vindication that is to come through, through his appointed messenger, Jesus, who will purify and judge God's people. And this is the good news of, of this passage, right? That the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, did come. And the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus upheld the covenant between God and Israel his entire life. The only person in human flesh to ever fulfill all of the law, to meet it, to match it, and to, to live it out completely. And Jesus then sealed that covenant in his blood on the cross. So we're all sinful and rebellious people. And we have rebelled against God and we've rebelled against his truth. And because of that, we deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve an eternal separation from God's favor. But God, in His love for His creation, in His love for His people, in His love, designed a way for a rebel to become a saint. 
Jesus, who is God in human flesh, came and lived among us. In his life here on earth, he fulfilled all of that law of God that we cannot fulfill no matter how hard we try. He has done for us what we could never do. And in that, he rescues us. He takes our sin, he takes our shame, he takes our guilt, and he places them on the cross with his body. He willingly pays for our sin by sacrificing himself for our sake. Jesus was then raised from the dead to provide the only way for us to be rescued and restored to right relationship with God. And we must admit our sinfulness and stop trusting in ourselves and stop trusting in our own power. We must ask Jesus to forgive us and to rescue us. And when we do this, this is the beautiful thing, is when we, when we ask Jesus to, to forgive us, to, to rescue us, he brings through us a new life. He, he, he just lives in us and he dwells in us and a new life and he begins to work making us new creatures. And this is that purification process. He's slowly making us over time into, into something new, something holy. That God, through Jesus Christ, renews all aspects of our lives. Makes us new creatures. And we can live a life that leads to divine purification rather than divine judgment. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we can look back at His faithfulness and we can rest in the promise of His grace. Jesus has taken the judgment that we deserve. And we can then live in reverent fear of the Lord God because of that. We can seek to honor Him. We can seek to glorify Him because of all of that. Church, let us desire a divine purification so that we may live more like Christ in all we do. As I'm, as I'm looking at this, if you've never taken the time to say, hey, I, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know more about how He changes lives. I want to know more about what he does. I would love to talk to you during this time of, of what we call our, our call, to, uh, call to action, our time of invitation. This is where we invite you to do business with God. And if you just want to know more about Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about that. We're going to enter into a time of, of just kind of quiet reflection, a time where you may sing, you may pray, time in which you do some business to God, where we can ask him to help us live out in that reverent fear, to seek to honor and glorify him and desire purification through Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for this time that you've given to us. Thank you for this, this time to be in your word. We thank you that you are a God who loves us enough that you provided Jesus as a way for us to be in your favor, to know you, to not be separated from you. You've provided for us a, a way in Jesus to be purified and made more holy like you for your sake, to be made more like Jesus every day. Father, that's my prayer. That's my prayer that, that, that I be more like Jesus as you purify me, that, that, that we as a congregation be more like Jesus as you purify us. 
We want to honor and glorify you. We want to, we want to proclaim the truth of your message to people everywhere. Help us do that. Help us be open to that. Convict us. Challenge us. Draw us close. And it's in Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen.